Hello, welcome to Supplements, a health news podcast to supplement your weekly news intake. I'm Miranda, and this is my co-host, Sabrina. Hello. Join us as we dissect what's going on this week in healthcare. Before we jump into news stories, where are we at with our COVID-19 vaccination rollout in America? As of February 13th, 11.2% of the U.S. population has received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, and 3.9% has received both doses. Statewide, Alaska leads the vaccination race with 16.7%, West Virginia comes in second with 13.5%, New Mexico follows close behind with 13.2%, and Connecticut takes fourth place with 13% of their population having at least one dose. In terms of both doses, West Virginia leads with 7.5%, then Alaska with 7.2%. Next, North Dakota comes in at 6%. Lastly, New Mexico is in fourth place with 5.6%. But this data would skew more towards smaller states since they have fewer residents to vaccinate. So California has actually administered the most doses with about 5.5 million doses administered. And that's about 1.5 million more than Texas the state with the next most administered doses. These 5.5 million vaccines that have been administered in California only accounts for a little more than 10% of their population. So now that we've discussed the vaccination campaign in America, let's get on to our stories for this week. There were a lot of new developments this week. The CDC has released new findings regarding masking. The debate continues on whether domestic flights should require COVID testing. The pandemic continues to take a toll on mental health, and there soon might be a new miracle weight loss pill. So Miranda, I heard double masking is the new trend. Yeah, so the CDC actually released new findings this week that showed that double masking can block 92% of infectious particles. And they say that double masking can significantly improve protection. So researchers found that by layering a cloth mask over a blue surgical mask, you can block about 92.5% of particles from escaping out of your mask because this creates a tighter fit and eliminates leakage. And this would also protect um, infectious particles from coming in. So I don't know about you, but remember when we couldn't find masks anywhere? Oh my gosh, I know. I had family members trying to send me masks because they were afraid that I wouldn't be able to buy them. Yeah, like my mom had to send me masks from Taiwan. Now, this is really interesting because there's actually small companies that have millions of masks, but no way to sell them. An existing barrier for these small businesses is the purchasing habits of hospital systems. These buyers tend to buy masks from China since they're cheaper. Yet, this has really created a new problem, which is millions of counterfeit N95 masks have found their way to America. Cleveland Clinic recently found that it has distributed 3M counterfeits to hospital staffers. Now, what's actually really interesting is ECRI, which is a nonprofit that tests the safety of medical devices, shows that these counterfeit masks have really high filtration levels, yet they also have a higher breathing resistance. So this means that when a person's wearing a mask, it might lift off the face, letting in unfiltered air. So when you're getting N95 masks, it's actually really important to get them fitted so that this doesn't happen. 
So with these counterfeit masks, how are they being regulated? Who prevents us from distributing these counterfeit masks to our healthcare workers? Because I think it's essential that our healthcare workers are protected since they are the ones treating us and protecting us from this virus. Exactly. So Senator Cantwell has asked the Federal Trade Commission to look into these counterfeits that were shipped into America. President Biden has vowed to buy American, so hopefully soon domestic production of essential medical gear can ramp up and our healthcare workers will be better protected. So that's our update this week on masking in America. But what's happening with other preventative measures such as testing? I know you had some news regarding COVID tests and airline travel. The CDC director said it may be time for travelers to show a negative coronavirus test to board domestic flights. So what has the response been to this potential policy? There has been negative response from those in government as well as the transportation industry. Congressman Biggs, a Republican representative from Arizona, has introduced a bill to prevent this mandate that would require COVID-19 testing for domestic travel. Major airline companies such as Delta and Southwest Airlines have also expressed disapproval for this potential mandate. Delta CEO labeled this mandate a horrible idea, stating it could potentially take testing resources from sick people, and also it would create logistical issues for the airline industry. However, in response to a very similar mandate, major hotel chains have started offering on-site virus tests. This kind of shows that between the two industries, they really have a different response. Hotel chains have managed to adapt while airlines are very against the negative COVID-19 test requirement. I do think that it's time that the airlines do adapt to this because Like we said in our very first episode, it doesn't seem like COVID-19 is going away anytime soon. And I think that by having this mandate where travelers need to show a negative COVID-19 test, whether it be domestic or international travel, will potentially help stop the spread. Because I do believe that a lot of the spread of COVID-19 is from all the traveling that we do from state to state and from country to country. And with the rising number of variants, I think this is a good idea. But obviously, I'm not a CEO of a major airline with a ton of money on the line. So that's my take. In the very least, airlines should start blocking middle seats again. So for our third segment, we wanted to talk about the various negative effects of the pandemic. There was a 74% increase in illicit drug overdose deaths in 2020 in British Columbia. Additionally, the pandemic has also caused admissions for alcoholic liver disease in various hospitals. Specialists in hospitals affiliated with the University of Michigan, Northwestern University, Harvard, and the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City said that rates of emissions for alcoholic liver disease have leapt by up to 50% since March. I do remember reading like a couple months ago that alcohol sales have been skyrocketing since quarantine started. I think probably a lot of people are turning to alcohol to cope since these are just such tough trying times. Many of us have probably been suffering from mental health issues, whether it be a result from being in isolation for too long or just the additional stress that COVID has caused. 
55% workers have actually said that a mental health issue has affected them more since the pandemic has begun. So it's definitely not just workers and adults who are suffering from mental health issues during these times. I think a lot of students and younger adults and just kids are really struggling to cope with schools moving online, being isolated from their friend groups, keeping up with online schooling. So San Francisco is actually suing schools in its city citing higher rates of suicidal students as created by school closures during the pandemic. San Francisco schools have been closed since March of last year, and this period of extended distance learning has created increased emotional and mental harms. So UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital has seen an alarming increase in the percentage of children and youth who require help for mental health services. So this lawsuit seems to really want to force schools to open. Are any other cities in California considering this? So this lawsuit is actually the first of its kind in California and possibly in the U.S. as well. And school systems are definitely facing increasing pressure from parents and politicians to reopen schools. In Los Angeles, a city councilman is also urging similar legal action in order to force schools to reopen. So there are actually a lot of disparities in Los Angeles right now between more affluent communities and more low-income communities over school reopening. And there is a lot of negotiations that remain in how school reopening would look in some of these more low-income communities. So the LA Unified School District actually has 80% of its students from low-income families, and they're still negotiating right now with their teachers' union, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, over what reopening would look like in their schools. And so this teachers' union has made it clear that they are not ready to return yet, citing the high rates of coronavirus in their community. They believe that officials should be focusing on vaccinating teachers and other faculty in order for schools to safely reopen. And so teachers are hesitant to return without being vaccinated. We really need to treat teachers better. They really do help shape the future generation. And I feel like a lot of times we don't prioritize them enough. So I think right now there is kind of this dichotomy between wanting to help our teachers and support our teachers and keep them safe, but also wanting to get our children and get our students back in school so that they're receiving a more well-rounded, a richer education and having that social interaction back in their lives. Because as shown in San Francisco, and I'm sure there is data from so many other places. Students' mental health are really suffering during this stay-at-home online learning. And so Biden has to really juggle these different responsibilities, one to teachers and one to children and their parents. And so as we discussed in an earlier episode, Biden has this seven-pronged plan, one of which is to reopen schools safely. And on Tuesday of this past week, the White House press secretary has said that schools would be considered reopened if they have in-person teaching at least one day a week. 
the Biden administration's goal currently is to reopen 50% of classrooms for one day a week. And this stated goal has received backlash from Republicans such as Kevin McCarthy of California, who tweeted that our students deserve more. So this goal only applies to elementary and middle schools, correct? Right. So the Biden administration has had to scale back on their ambitions for reopening schools. And right now they're really focused on reopening elementary and middle schools. But what about high schools and colleges? Honestly, I'm not too sure about how reopening would look like for high schools and colleges. Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief plan does include $130 billion earmarked to help schools upgrade buildings, um, buy protective equipment, and take other steps to reopen. And I'm not sure if a part of that is going to high schools and colleges, or if that's just solely for the elementary and middle schools. However, Biden has picked a new education secretary, Miguel Cardona, whose nomination was approved with a 17 to 5 vote on Thursday. So he will be a part of this effort to reopening schools. And hopefully that includes plans for our high schools and colleges. Hopefully we can find a solution soon that encompasses both our students' well-being as well as their academics. To conclude our second segment on mental health and substance abuse, California Senate Bill 855, which came into effect at the start of this year, expands the number of conditions and length of treatment for which insurers will cover. This will allow individuals under state-regulated commercial health plans to receive a wider range of treatment for mental health and substance abuse conditions ranging from mild to severe. So there's about 13 million Californians insured under state-regulated commercial health plans. And this bill also requires health plans to cover out-of-network providers at in-network costs if an enrollee is unable to find timely treatment within a reasonable distance. I think this is a really great step in addressing mental health and substance abuse issues in California. However, I do wonder if enrollees will be aware of this law. I know with a lot of these changes to insurance plans, a lot of individuals actually aren't aware that these changes occur and don't know that their insurance plan has expanded coverage because I think a lot of insurance companies are hesitant to like make a big effort to educate their enrollees about these changes since it would be more costly to their insurance plan. So hopefully more people who are under this insurance coverage will learn about this and be able to take advantage of it. So before the COVID-19 pandemic came along, America was already fighting an obesity epidemic. However, researchers have found that an existing treatment for type 2 diabetes, semaglutide, may be effective in helping patients with obesity lose weight and avoid other obesity-related conditions such as diabetes. So currently, the most effective medication brings about 7.5% weight loss, but a third of participants who tried semaglutide lost more than 20% of their weight. So it's a very significant difference. So it sounds like this drug 
is an effective treatment for patients with obesity, but how expensive is it? What is the likelihood that insurers will pay for this treatment? So generally, insurers do not pay for weight loss drugs on the market. Semaglutide will most likely be expensive. Currently, when semaglutide is being used to treat diabetes, it averages for nearly $1,000 a month. In order to treat obesity, you need to take a higher dose of semaglutide, which means this will most likely be over $1,000 a month. However, because the trial results are really good, maybe insurers will want to cover it so that more people choose to take it. I mean, I think it would be awesome if insurers do cover this because this is a non-invasive procedure for people with obesity to treat their condition, whereas bariatric surgery, which is the most effective treatment for obesity, is invasive and only 1% of those who qualify actually go through with it. I hope this drug proves useful in controlling the obesity epidemic. So to close off today's episode, we just wanted to end with some wholesome news. A French nun has recently turned 117. Sister Andre lived through the 1918 flu pandemic, two world wars, and many other historic events. Most recently, she has beat the coronavirus with barely any complications and she is the oldest known person to have survived COVID-19. And finally, we just wanted to read some of Kaiser Health News Health Policy Valentines to wish you a very happy Valentine's Day. From at Holtgrave Health, roses are red, violets are blue. Please wear a mask. I'll take two. So yeah, just a reminder that double masking has shown to be more effective. And here's another one from Ariel Levin Becker. Roses are red, violets are blue. My heart has a special enrollment period just for you. The special enrollment period begins on Monday of February 15th. And lastly, from at Kelly M. Doran, roses are red, violets are blue. Distribute vaccines faster and more equitably too. Definitely 100% agree with that. So thank you for tuning in to Supplements today. And remember to follow us on our social media pages at SupplementsPod on Instagram and Twitter. See you next week.